This morning we'll be reading from two different parts of the Bible. The first section is from um, the book of John, uh, chapter 12, verse 12 through 16, and that can be found on pages 899. Uh, Then we'll be moving to Zechariah uh, in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, and that can be found at page 797 in the uh, Pew Bible. Uh, The first passage can be found at on page 1156 in the following Jesus Bible, and then uh, 11,003 and 11,004 for the second passage. So this is reading from the book of John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a, colt's, on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Then turning to the Old Testament, to Zechariah, I start with verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoner of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go over for children's worship in our children and youth discipleship building, I'll invite them to line up now with Miss Brittany and Mr. Chris and our team, and uh, they'll take them across the way. Every single person in this room and every single person that you know has things that they hope for. Things that looking into the future that they are longing for. At the same time, we also usually have concerns about the future. Fears, worries about the future. And a lot of the time, our fears and our concerns, our our hopes and our fears are two sides of the same coin. Like, what is it that we fear? Usually the opposite of the thing that we're hoping for. Now, when we read the Bible and we see a story like this that happened 2,000 years ago, it's easy to think this crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, it's easy to think these people are very different from us. They lived a long, long time ago. They did live a long time ago, but they are actually quite similar to us. Their hopes and their fears are very similar to our own. So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem... The people hear that he's coming. 
And they'd heard the stories about his power and glory. He just raised Lazarus from the dead, and that news was sweeping the countryside. Some of them had probably heard about the previous sign he'd done where he'd healed a man who was born blind. No one had heard of anything like that happening. And so these people show up to meet Jesus. And with them, they brought their hopes and their fears. And what did they cry out as Jesus entered town? They cried out, Hosanna, which means save us. They call out, save us, King Jesus. We'll save you. Save you from what? And save you for what? What are the things they feared from which they needed to be saved? And what are the things they hoped for for which they needed to be saved? I want to argue that their hopes and fears were not too much different from ours. They, like us, had hopes and fears about their country, their culture, how rapidly things were changing under the Roman Empire. They had hopes and fears about the religious institutions, about their own connection with God. And generally speaking, they had hopes and fears about the future and about future generations. And all of these hopes and fears that these people had bottled up within them erupt in this cacophony, Hosanna, save us, King of Israel. And how does Jesus respond to their cries for salvation? Look at verse 14 in John chapter 12. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So you'd think that this is Jesus' moment. The city that has so opposed him, the city... The disciples didn't even want to go back because they tried to stone Jesus to death last time. The city whose rulers are plotting to kill Jesus. He comes into this city where, that has been like enemy territory. And they're saying, save us, king of Israel. So you think, this is it. This is where Jesus takes the throne of David. This is where Jesus makes his grand, grand declaration of his kingdom. That he's going to be victorious over Rome and Israel and Satan himself. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't take advantage of the momentum in his platform. He doesn't ride on a warrior's horse. He doesn't come in swinging a sword. Instead, in the face of the crowd, he humbles himself. He rides a donkey. And with this mysterious prophetic action that his disciples didn't even understand until later, by riding this donkey into town, Jesus is responding to the crowd. He is responding to their cries for salvation. And what is he saying? He's saying, I will save you from your fears. I will fulfill your hopes, but not how you expect. Jesus would fulfill their hopes. He would address their fears, but not in the way of the kings of the earth. He'd do it by shedding his own blood on the cross. That's what he's saying. Now, as we take all of this into consideration, it leaves us with a question. What does the death of Jesus have to do with your fears? 
What does the humiliation and death of Jesus on the cross have to do with your hopes? So let's do an exercise. I've got two questions for you to consider. First, what hope or fear most captures your thoughts or vexes your heart? This is the one that you lay down at night and staring at the ceiling, and there it is. This is the one if you turn off the podcast while you're driving around town. This is the one that distracts you. What is the hope or fear that most captures your thoughts or vexes your heart? That's the first question. The second one, how does the cross of Christ offer a resolution to that hope or fear? That first question, you can probably answer it like that. Very little difficulty. You may have already jotted down your answer on your worship guide or in your brain. That question is easy. But the second question, the crowd didn't understand that. The disciples at first didn't understand that. And very few people today understand that. You may not be able to answer that question. The cross of Christ. Well, that's how we get to heaven. That's how we have our sins forgiven. That's how the wrath of God is satisfied. Yes, yes, and amen. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross is even greater than that. And to help you see that, I want to zoom in on this idea of your fears and hopes. The hopes and fears of humanity are ultimately concerned with two things, justice and shalom. Whatever your great hope is, whatever uh, fear keeps you up at night, if you dig deep enough into that hope or into that fear, it always comes back to these two issues, justice and shalom. Now, I'm going to have to define these two words for you. First of all, shalom is a Hebrew word. Therefore, I I have to define it. But justice is a hot-button word that means a lot of different things to different people. So you need to know what I mean when I say justice. Let's start there. When I talk about justice, I'm talking about justice in a classical and even ancient sense. Justice is evil being unseated and made to answer for its crimes in a way that is fair and impartial. That's what I mean when I say injustice. So justice is an oppressive ruler being removed from his throne, tried and rightly convicted, and then punished for his crimes. Justice is a criminal paying retributively for their crimes. Justice, at the same time, is also having just scales. So in a truly just society, people are treated equally, with no one favored above another uh, in the law, right? Doesn't matter who you're related to, doesn't matter how much money you got, everybody's being treated the same. That is justice. And the reality is, there is no true justice in the world. None. Doesn't exist anymore. We have glimpses of it. We see glimpses of it. But not perfectly. And from that place of no true, pure justice... We all find ourselves with hopes and with fears. But a fair and just society is not all that we want. We don't just want evil unseated, punished, removed. We want things to be better. We want things to be as they should be. And all of that is encapsulated in this Hebrew notion of shalom. Shalom is that state of peace and prosperity that comes when the world is as it should be. Shalom is perfect restoration to God's 
design. So when I hear these people crying out to Jesus, this is what I hear, a cry for shalom. Yes, they want justice to come. They want their Roman oppressors, the people who are inhabiting their land, to be driven out and for Israel to have a free and equitable society. Yes, they want justice. But really and truly, they want the world to be as it should be. They want Israel restored to God, living with him in peace and living with one another in peace. They want to be living out God's purposes in the world. These people, like you and me, want justice and shalom. As an aside, do you realize your unbelieving neighbors want justice and shalom too? You might not agree with them on what justice is or what it looks like. You might not agree on what peace and prosperity should look like. But they, like you, sense that something is wrong in the world. And they do want the world to be as it should be. So there's a lot of food for thought and dialogue with our unbelieving family and friends around these topics of justice and shalom. So that's what they are. That's what justice and shalom are. But now, I need to justify my statement that your hopes... And your fears, that all the hopes and fears of humanity are ultimately concerned with justice and shalom. I mean, your hope, the greatest hope, the one that captures your thoughts and vexes your heart, your hope might be that your job improves or that your child doesn't fail English class next year or that the stock market goes up. That might be your hope. Your fear might not have anything to do with these big cosmic ideas like justice and shalom. So how can I make this claim that at the heart of all our hopes and fears is ultimately a desire for justice and shalom? Here's how I think I can make that claim. If the world was as it should be, there would be nothing left to fear or hope for. If the world was as it should be, there would be no evil to put to rights. All people would be treated fairly and equally, and we would have peace and prosperity in relation to God and one another in the world. And there's nothing to fear or hope for in a world like that. And isn't that why Jesus came? Through his death to set the world free from sin and all of its consequences. Isn't that the kind of world he's going to bring one day when he returns? You and I would agree on this. But here's the challenge. The things we fear... And the things we hope for, they seem disconnected from these big cosmic ideas like sin, death, and eternity. And that's what I want to help you see this morning. Your fears, your hopes, they may seem small in the grand scope of life and eternity. But no matter how big or small they are, they are an invitation to you to trust and hope in the death of Jesus. Because what does every one of us want more than anything else? We just want things put right. We do want a society where everyone is treated fairly, equally, justly, and we want brokenness, sin, and pain in our lives gone. We want the brokenness, sin, and pain of our world undone. We want to live with God in a state of purpose, peace, and provision, do we not? These are the things we lost in the fall of humanity, and it's what Jesus came to restore. In his humiliation and death, Jesus opened the path for us to have the justice and shalom for which we long. 
When Jesus rode into town on a donkey, he was saying something. First, he's telling the crowd, I'm not what you expect. I'm not a king who's coming to take the world by force. No, I'm going to save the world through my humiliation and death. But he was saying something else. Jesus didn't pull this donkey thing out of his ear. No, it was a very intentional choice that he made. It was a symbolic act that was packed with meaning. When Jesus chose to ride a donkey, he was intentionally signaling that his kingship should be understood through the lens of Zechariah chapter 9. And what does Zechariah chapter 9 say? Zechariah 9 is a prophecy about the king who had come and restore Israel from her fallen state. But the prophecy in Zechariah 9 doesn't only talk about Israel. So grab your Bible, turn with me. Zechariah is real easy to find because you know where Matthew is, right? You know, it's the first book of the New Testament. You're going to go two books back from that, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. So turn me to Zechariah. All right, Zechariah 9, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Why did Jesus come to this earth? It wasn't simply to free Israel from Rome, no. He didn't come to restore the Jewish people to God, no. He didn't come to preserve the future generations of one particular people group, no. His kingdom is bigger than that. Jesus came to bring peace and justice to the whole world. He came not just for the family of Abraham. He came through the family of Abraham for the family of Adam. He came to bring justice and shalom to all who would call out to him. But how would he do that? He would accomplish this through the blood of his covenant. Through his blood, he would bring justice and shalom to the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to deal with your fears? That it was enough to be the great fulfillment of all your hopes? How does the death of the king, which sounds crazy, how does the death of the king provide for all things being made right? How does the cross promise justice and shalom to this world and to all who trust Christ? Well, while all of us deeply desire justice, all of us also deserve justice that we can't afford to pay. Let me use an illustration from my own household. It's not uncommon for any child in my house to do something mean to another child. And do you know what the offended child wants desperately? They want justice. <laughs> it is funny to me how little children are so, so, such passionate bastions for justice. The slightest injustice in my house leads to a riot. But let's say they get justice. Let's say their sibling gets their due punishment. Guess what? The next day, the two roles will be reversed. 
And the offended so easily becomes the offender. The innocent, the just, so easily becomes the unjust one. We all want justice, but we don't. We want those who offend us to pay. We want evil to be unseated unless we're the ones in the seat. The world is broken because of sin, and that's something that we all contribute to every day. And what does justice for sin look like in the scriptures? The cost, the punishment for sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Hell, eternity apart from God's grace. And eternity without shalom. That is the final price of our injustice. But on the cross, Jesus paid the price of justice for those who trust him. Now, that accomplishes two things. First, it makes it possible for us to live forever. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied justice on our behalf so that we need not die and be separate from God. But there's a second effect that's just as radical as the first. If my eternal debt to God can be forgiven through the cross of Christ then that should free me from my own sense of wanting justice from another. This is the power of the gospel. If God can forgive me of my mountain of grievances against him, then surely I can forgive whatever men and women have done to me. Now, this idea would have been absolutely rejected by the crowds as Jesus was riding into town. They didn't want to forgive the Romans. They didn't want to forgive their oppressors. No, they wanted bloody justice. In their minds, they were good Jewish folk who'd come here for the Passover, forgetting the whole point of Passover, that we need a sacrifice to die in our place. Forgetting that every one of us is imprisoned and enslaved by sin, and unless blood is shed, our blood will be shed. So here's the question. One day, Jesus will return and establish a just society. And before then, he intends to increase justice on the earth through his church. But in the meantime, can the magnitude of the debt forgiven you give you the ability to forgive what others have done against you? What a salve to our fears and hopes this would be if you could let go of all the injustices committed against you. Yes, one day the resurrected Jesus will come back and he will put the world to rights. Justice will be complete on that day. Evil will be unseated. It will be punished. And between now and then, God's people are called to labor and fight and speak for a more just society inside and outside the church. But what if in the meantime, we learn to forgive? What if we learn to pity the Romans, knowing their fate apart from Christ? What if we learn to love them as Christ loved those who crucified him, who even on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them. When I see the gravity of my sin, when I am honest about how selfish and prideful and self-justifying and self-important I am, when I see how often I try to take back the reins of my life and yet God forgives me over and over and over and over, when I see the magnitude of my sin, it makes the sin of other people seem so much less, seem so much more forgivable. And a life like that, when I'm able to let injustice go, 
when I respond to it with compassion and forgiveness rather than with a burning desire to get what's due me. If I could step away from that, isn't that what life really should be like? In his humiliation and death, Jesus opened the path for us to have justice and shalom. Through his own death on the cross, he paid the justice for our sins. And while he will return to establish justice fully one day, and for that we should hope, even now we can find freedom from our need for justice by forgiving as we have been forgiven. But what about this shalom, this peace and restoration for which each of us longs? When you look at Zechariah 9, clearly there are promises that one day when Jesus, or there are promises about what Jesus would accomplish through his death on the cross. One day Jesus will return. He's going to raise his people from the dead. It's not in this text, it's in others. He's going to raise his people from the dead, and he's going to usher in an eternity of peace. But the problem we face is this. We're not there yet. We don't have shalom yet. We don't have this perfect peace that we'll have when Jesus comes back. All things are not yet right. Well, the restoring power of the cross is not limited to the eternal kingdom, but can be known in part now through communion with God and with his people. So we need to be careful how we talk about shalom. Shalom is not a feeling of peace. No. Shalom is the peace and prosperity that comes when things are as it should be. Now, we're never going to have that in its fullness before Jesus comes back, but we can experience it in large part through a relationship with God and with his people. If our relationship with God is, is, is made right, and if our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is made right, then we should experience this peace and prosperity in part now, shouldn't we? So look again at Zechariah 9. I'm going to read verses 9, 11, and 12 after the sip of water. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. I love this phrase, prisoners of hope. What's a prisoner of hope? It's someone in chains whose eyes are on the horizon. They may be in shackles, but they haven't forgotten how the story ends. I think it's also telling that they're not alone, are they? It's prisoners of hope. Yes, the world is not as it should be. But God hasn't left us alone. He's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's given us each other. And what is the effect of that? We wait together. We hope together. And when possible, we meet one another's needs as God's provision to them. It is our job as emissaries of King Jesus here and now to meet the very real needs of the world, especially of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Member of this church, you, when you are hungry... It's our job to feed you. 
When you are lonely and hurting, it's our job to be there with you and to comfort you. And it's your job to return the favor too. Jesus has left us here together to bring shalom in one another's lives as much as we are able. And also to do that beyond this community. To show people that there is something new happening on this earth. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, a new humanity was born. A new people was born. A new kingdom came in power and provision and love. And as we do this work, we find the joy-filled hope of being in the family of God and experiencing shalom even in our want. We can experience this provision. We can experience this peace, even though things are not yet fully made right yet. There's a tenderness in Zechariah 9 and the way that God talks to his people. He calls Israel his daughter. He invites them to rejoice, to hope. This is a voice of a God who loves and has great plans for his people. So with your hopes and with your fears, with your longing for all things to be made right, here's my question. Have you come to Jesus and to his people to see how they can provide for you and walk with you between now and eternity? There is great peace, freedom, and provision to be had among the people of God. In his humiliation and death, Jesus opened the path for us to have justice and shalom. Yes, we're going to have it perfectly one day when he comes back and makes all things right, but we can experience it in part now as Christ frees us from our personal need of justice and provides for our needs through a new family, through the people of God. So, I ask my questions again. First, what hope or fear most captures your thoughts? And vexes your heart. And second, how does the cross of Christ offer a resolution to that fear or hope? Maybe you still can't answer that second question, but I commend you to prayerfully chew on it because it's my belief that deep down all of our fears and all of our hopes come down to these two issues of justice and shalom, two things that Jesus made available to you through his humiliation and death. One day, he's going to return and bring justice. He's going to make all things right. But between now and then, his death not only gives us the capacity to forgive others, but he invites us into a relationship with himself and with his people where we can find love, provision, and other hopeful people alongside we can live this journey of faith together. Let's pray. Holy God, I ask by your spirit you would stir up the hearts of everyone listening that they would know their great fear and hope. But more than that, that they would see how the humiliation of Jesus on the cross actually speaks directly to that fear and hope. That they would see that in Jesus, in Jesus alone, can be found the justice and shalom that they long for. And that every day this week and every day of their life, they would become more and more reliant on Christ and his people to comfort them, to provide for them, to supply their need. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.